right, good morning. I feel the excitement in the room. Woo. Grab your Bible, and let's go to Leviticus. Anytime you hear the pastor start in Leviticus, you know it's going to be one of those days. So I apologize in advance. Um, we are studying about the second or first least favorite topic in all of Christian teaching. So I don't know which one, if this is number one for you or number two of your least favorite topics. It's one or the other, I presume. And I'll take today's attendance. Might be explained by the weather, but it can also be explained by the topic. And of course, instead of giving, which is the other one, we are talking about fasting. Amen? No, yeah, okay. There's a, at least we're honest that uh, fasting is not our favorite topic. So why talk about fasting? You know, you may be excited to learn that in the New Testament, Fasting is not mentioned that many times. In the Old Testament, it's not even mentioned that many times. And so it's like, well, maybe it's just not that big of a deal. Well, that's unfortunately not the case. So we're going to talk about fasting today. And we're going to talk about it from the context of the sermon series we are in. I just didn't pick fasting out of the blue. There is a rhythm. There is a, a goal. There's a means. There's a strategy to what we're doing. And so as you turn towards Leviticus... We're going to spend a few moments setting up our context for what's going on. So we have been formally discussing what we have called the means of grace. We start at the very beginning of the year. We've only got one more sermon in this series, so we are most of the way through. We've covered a lot of ground. We've covered a lot of topics, all under that heading of means of grace. Now, the difficulty with that expression, we say this every week, is that we basically don't use either of those two words in that way anymore. Means or grace. Means in historical Christian theology was just a way of saying maybe what we might call a tool. What resources, what actions, what tasks, what habits, what disciplines can we use to grow in grace? And we typically think of grace exclusively in terms of that moment of salvation. We are saved by Grace, And, of course, that is a very prominent usage of the word grace in the scriptures. However, there's another usage of the word grace, and that's to refer to our growth in Christ-likeness. We grow in God's grace. And I think there's a reason the Bible prefers this word grace. is because if we use the word work, you need to work on salvation, we, by default, revert to a works-based system of theology from beginning to end. And we have to understand that we grow in Christ-likeness, not by human willpower, not by the strength of our resolve, but by the grace of the Lord. Now, there are tools, means we can employ to grow in that grace. And as we define that growth in Christ-likeness, it's important to always be reminded that our goal in our growth in Christ-likeness is not to conform outwardly into a righteous behavior that's Christ-honoring. Whereas I need to line up my actions with the right ideology of Christianity. That is not our goal. Instead, our goal is to align our inward person with Christ-likeness. So what I'm saying is not that you should stop sinning, but rather you should stop wanting to. If you think about it, that is a far more difficult task. And when we talk about eating and fasting today... We're going to see, it'd be one thing for me to tell you to skip a meal. It'd be another thing entirely for me to say, just quit wanting food. would be like, well, how am I supposed to do that? It's a built-in desire, 
Well, for many of us, there's a lot of sins we could say the exact same thing about. But there's things we desire. It's just part of who I am. What I want, what I crave is part of me. It is part of you. But it's part of you that needs to change. That's what we mean when we say grow in Christ-likeness. How do we change our inward-most self, our desires, the very heartbeat of our daily rhythms? How do we change that part of us? The answer has been, for several weeks we've been talking about this, the, the different means of grace. We put them into two categories. We said the, the corporate or objective means of grace. Let's see how good you remember. What were the three biblical objective means of grace? Baptism, Lord's Supper, which we just did, and what I'm about to be doing, preaching the word. Those are the three that we do corporately. And if we participate in those, there's genuine spiritual gain, genuine spiritual benefit. Then we finish that section and we move towards what we call the subjective um, means of grace, or more commonly in tradition, we call them disciplines or habits. They're things I can mostly do by myself. I may do them with people, but for the most part, I'm doing this one-on-one -on -one with the Lord, and we've been discussing these habits, these means of grace, these spiritual disciplines. We First, we talked about the Word, how the Word should permeate any discipline. I should read it I should study it, memorize it, make it part of me, meditate on it. And then last week we discussed prayer. Prayer is a fundamental aspect of our communion with the Lord. Not as a means of manipulation, but as a means of communing with our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so now we're coming to the third habit. And it's kind of like each of these is a category. So the first category was the Word. We can read it. We can grow in it. We can memorize it. We can study it. And then we talked about prayer. We can... Think about prayer as just this specific vocalization of requests to the Lord. But really, we expanded that out to talk more about the contemplative life. I really struggle with that word. The contemplative life, how we're thinking about God. Praying without ceasing was not an unending series or stream of conscious prayer, but rather redeeming all of thought in general. We're thinking about the Lord and redeeming each scenario. So now we're moving into fasting. When we talk about fasting... Of course, it is the most basic element. We're talking about not eating some food. But it's also a larger category. We're going to think about it in terms of that category. So here's how we're going to set this up. God has given us good things. So if you think back to the very first story in the Bible, you know what the first story is. It's the story of creation. When God gets done with creation, he, he stops, he rests, he looks at creation, and he provides an assessment of what has been created. Now, what is the primary word in his assessment when he looks at creation? This is good. Creation is good. The biblical worldview has a very high view of the created world, the material flesh even. The world is good, and the delights of the world are good. And we think, when we look at the Garden of Eden, we think God put Adam and Eve in this garden, and he wouldn't let them eat from that tree. Well, that's a sinful perspective, because he put them in the garden, and what did he say they could do in that garden? They could have it all. Everything in there was for their delight and enjoyment, save one tree. Everything else could be thousands, maybe millions of trees, different fruits, experiences, sights, colors, things I could smell, savor, enjoy. All of this given by God for their pleasure. So historically, even today, one of the ways we glorify God is by enjoying the gifts 
He has given. Has God ever given you something that you delighted in and it was a worshipful experience for you? This probably if you have children, you know this experience very well. God gives us things, and our delight in those things itself can be a way we glorify Him. I God, thank you for this. You ever made a specific prayer request? Some thing in your life you really, really begged and pleaded the Lord to give you. Maybe he didn't have to give you. It didn't necessarily life or death, but he did give it to you. What happened in your spirit when that prayer request was fulfilled and God blessed you with that item? You're probably overfilled with joy and gratitude. What's glorifying to the Lord to enjoy his gifts? The gifts are not bad. Well, there's another way, however, we can glorify God when a gift is before us, and that's by abstaining from the gift. And that's saying, this gift is good. There's nothing wrong with that gift. But God, I want you more than I want this gift. Now, that's where fasting is going to come in. So those are two positive ways we can look at the Lord's gifts. There's actually two ways we can misuse the gifts as well. One is any gift the Lord gives, obviously, we can turn into an idol. We have this incredible ability to make anything, no matter how good and glorious inherently it may be, we can make it an idol. Or we can reverse this and make everything material and physical evil, and we abstain from everything. Again, not biblical, not fasting, not what we're talking about today. So we're going to talk about today kind of this tension between enjoying God's good gifts and then why it's appropriate at certain times and certain ways to abstain from God's good gifts for the sake of spiritual gain. So we're going to dive in and just kind of try to define what exactly is going on with the idea of fasting. So Leviticus, that I'll tell you the chapter 23, in a moment we will pick up in verse 26. So chapter 23, verse 26. We're in the middle of the Old Testament Torah, the law. This is what God gave Moses to give to his people. He's creating that Jewish culture we think of when we think of the Old Testament. And in that culture, there are a lot of corporate festivals and feasts, and in this case, a fast. And so I want you to see what's going on in this narrative. We're going to kind of define this idea of fasting from this one passage. It's, there's several fasts in the Old Testament. This is the one big one. This is the formal fast corporately the people of Israel are commanded to partake of. So this is going to be on the day of atonement. Leviticus 23, verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. So what day is the day of atonement? The tenth day of the seventh month. It shall be a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. All right, my translation says afflict yourself. Um, some translations use the word self-denial here, but this is the primary way we read about fasting in the Old Testament. Now, that, doesn't that sound appropriate? To not eat for a day is an affliction. If anybody, have you fasted for a whole day? You miss one meal? I don't know about you. I like food. I'm not going to lie. I like food a lot. Um, and when I miss a meal, my body reminds me. Not like two hours later, but like it prompts me. Like if I usually eat at 12, my body starts reminding me about 10. Hey, you can eat soon. I look at the clock. Look, it's not even lunchtime. By the time lunchtime comes, I'm ready for lunch every day. I mean, this is just my character. I, you are probably the same. Maybe you're not, but I think most of us do enjoy food. 
But if I miss that meal, it is an affliction. You ever miss the meal, get a little low blood sugar, and you start getting grouchy and grumpy? And, you know, it's like you turn into a different person when you miss out on food. If you don't know you do this, let me infer you do this. And I've met you when you were doing it. You know, this happens. We get grouchy. There's an affliction that comes to this missing a meal. But in this particular festival, it shall be a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves. This is at the Day of Atonement. Verse 28, explaining this further, you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is the Day of Atonement. Now, not doing work reminds you of what other Old Testament principle? Sabbath, the idea of the Sabbath. So the Day of Atonement, regardless of what day it was in the year or, or the week, it was a Sabbath. So sometimes you'll read in the Bible the Sabbaths, plural. Well, your regular weekly Sabbath, of course, was Saturday for them. But there's also this idea of there's extra Sabbaths. You can end up with Sabbaths two in a row, depending on how the days fall. There's these extra Sabbaths for whoever, look at verse 29, for whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. Now, let that sink in. If you don't participate in this fast, that was grounds for what? We would call it excommunication. In this context, this is more like exile. You're not part of us. It's a big deal for them. It's the only big fast they have. There's other kind of fasts, but this one is a big deal. It's part of the Day of Atonement. So he gets a little more precise. You shall not do any work, verse 31. Let's see, let's get 30. And whoever does any work on that day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves on the ninth day on the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. That's very significant. They kept the Sabbath and the fast at the same time, which meant on the ninth day of the month, when the sun went down, no more work, no more food, until when? The sun comes down again 24 hours later. So some Jewish scholars call this a 25-hour fast. Just to make sure you get the whole thing in there. Had to go 25 hours with no food. And some people think this even meant no water in this case. It doesn't explicitly say that, so I'm not sure we can go there. But point being, it was a big deal that you go the full 24 hours without food and afflict yourself before the Day of Atonement. Now, it's important to note that right after this, however, um, if you have headings in your Bible, um, do you have a heading at the next verse, 33, a subheading there? What's that subheading? The feast, of feast of Booths. Now, what's the first word there? Feast. All right, just skip down. I want you to see this, verse 39, just walking through how this feast works. On the 15th day of the seventh month, 15th day of the seventh month, same month as the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was what day of that month? Tenth. Now it is the 15th of that month. So just a few days later, when you've gathered in the produce of your land, you shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord seven days. All right, so within the same month, you have a day where if you eat anything, you're exiled from your people. Then a few days later, you are required by God to spend seven days doing what? Eating. Eating. Feasting, to be clear, all right? So, you know, we, we're Baptists, so when we have a dinner on the grounds, 
It's like we kind of have that, you know, gluttony is not a sin today. You know, eat as much as you want mentality. Well, honestly, biblically, a feast is. Indulge, enjoy the fruits of your harvest, of your labor. We had a day of affliction, but here's seven full days of delight in the good gifts of the Lord. And I think we can represent, see that there's a pattern to this. Why would we eat more often than we fast? Well, there's some obvious reasons for that. Why do you need to eat every day? Essentially, you'll die if you don't. I don't know if you know this about your body. You have to eat. If you don't eat and you quit eating completely forever, a forever won't last long. Right? It's just not a long process. You will starve to death. So here's how I want us to define fasting. It's abstaining from what is normally good for spiritual good. Abstaining from what is normally good for spiritually good. The reason I want to throw in there the normally good part is there's nothing wrong with eating. In fact, you're supposed to. In fact, technically in the Old Testament, during these festivals, it would have been a sin not to. I don't know if you remember on the um, Passover meal, they're supposed to cook the Passover a certain way. How much of it were they allowed to not eat before morning? Had to eat every single piece of that Passover lamb. Couldn't leave any of it. You were commanded right, to eat the meat. Interesting. So it can't be a vegetarian in the Old Testament. But uh, you have to eat this food. So you're commanded to eat at some times, but also commanded at other times not to. But I do want to stress the difference. There were seven days of fasting. Only the one day of required, sorry, did I say fasting? Seven days of feasting. They're both F. That's what's throwing me out. But only one day of fasting. And furthermore, the Bible mentions many good things as objects of fast. So if you look, I've got four blanks there. I want to talk about some of So obviously the first one's food. Food is the most common object of fasting in the scriptures. We see it clearly. Jesus did 40 days of fast before the, um, leading into the temptation. Moses did 40 days of fast leading to the coming of the Ten Commandments. We see fasting in this scenario is specifically food. But also, we see other things. Then I'll try not to get too specific. But uh, intimacy was required as fasting leading up to the giving of the Ten Commandments to Mount Sinai. You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, I'm not going to go any further. That You weren't allowed to do that leading up for three days, leading up to this holy moment. So you had to fast that. We also see fasting of that particular thing in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is giving some stipulations about when you fast that way, don't do it for very long. All right, keep that one short. But that was part of a fast. That still happened. So food, intimacy, also another fast is sleep. Fast sleep. Now, we fast sleep all the time, um, but not for religious reasons. We fast sleep because we're binge-watching that newest series on Netflix. You know what I'm talking about. Everybody in the room just went, okay, you got me. Right? Jesus fasts sleep regularly throughout his ministry in preparation for some big event. He fasts sleep all night before he um, picks the 12 disciples. He fasts all night before he is crucified. You remember the story of Gethsemane? He's always coming up to the disciples. He goes and prays. He comes back and they're asleep. And he's like, guys, can you just stay up and watch a little bit longer? Matthew 26, you see that. Sometimes, historically, instead of fasting sleep, that's called a vigil. You just stay up all night and you spend that time in prayer. You fasting sleep. Maybe a way for you to fast 
to get up an hour earlier every morning and spend some time with the Lord. That's just a type of fast. And then the most obvious, we don't usually call it this, but the Sabbath is a fast. From what? From work. I might say, oh, it's a day off. Why would you need to tell someone to fast? How many of you struggle with resting? And most of this room does. It's a fast. It's something we stop doing that's normally good, but we stop doing it for some spiritual gain. So there's a lot of things we could fast, and we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get into the how. Let's cover one more topic. To do this, go to the New Testament and go to Matthew. I'm going to pick up in chapter 9. This is probably the most elaborate teaching on fasting um, in the New Testament, and it's a little vague at times, but I want to get the main idea about what's going on with this idea of fasting. So here's the scenario. Jesus, the Son of God, has showed up on the scene, and he is preaching, he is teaching, he's performing miracles, but who came right before um, Jesus came? John. John the Baptist came. And he was teaching people to repent, and they were doing things like fasting. The Pharisees were fasting. But Jesus' disciples, um, Jesus gets accused not of being this hermit out in the desert who fasts and doesn't drink, but instead he's accused of being the opposite. He's a glutton and a drunkard because his disciples seem to not be fasting ever. So this question comes up, Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him. This is disciples of John the Baptist, they're saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So you have these Christians living daily with Jesus, not fasting. Then you have everybody else who's religious, and John's disciples are not, the Pharisees, oh, well, the Pharisees, they don't count, they're the bad guys. <laughs> no, yeah, no, they're the hypocrites, sure, but Jesus, his theology, his system of thought, it really comes from that movement pharisee world we're a type of pharisee in a certain sense theologically speaking paul of course is a former pharisee he only converted to christ not away from the teaching of the law he still believed in it so the pharisees aren't bad in this context and the disciples of john certainly aren't so you have two people that have a high view of the word of god both of them fast but the people hanging out with jesus are not fasting verse 15 jesus said to them can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So why aren't Jesus' disciples fasting? Because Jesus is with them. Why would they fast if Jesus was with them? So that's an obvious answer, apparently, to them. But in our context, we read that and go, wait, wait, wait. What? Why does Jesus' presence mean they wouldn't fast? Somehow Jesus being physically in their lives, present, at that moment, in space and time, incarnated in the flesh, Jesus' presence means you don't have to fast. Now, will they ever fast? Yes, it says when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. So when does that happen? Do we see that happen in the New Testament? Of course, when Jesus is crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and then he spends a few days with them. And then 40 days into that, what's he do? He bodily, physically, his actual flesh, leaves the earth, ascends into heaven, is now where? Seated at the right hand of God the Father. From that point forward, then fasting is now appropriate. So what is it about fasting 
that doesn't make sense if Jesus is present. So let's lay down this basic assumption, then I'm going to try to build this together a little more clearly as we move forward. We're going to get metaphysical in a moment, so I hope that doesn't get you too scared, but we have to think through this in a slightly complicated nature to make an understanding of why this works. But let's fill in this blank first. Fasting must be connected with the person of Christ. If Jesus is physically present, you don't need to fast. If Jesus is not physically present, then fasting is appropriate. But if he's present, you don't have to fast. This is really good news, because when I go to heaven, I don't think I'm going to have to do this anymore. But right now, he's not physically present, so fasting is appropriate. Now, to make sense of why, here's where we're going to go. We're going to go forward. So how is fasting a spiritual discipline? Why does not eating food have anything to do with my spiritual life? So here's where we're going to get technical. So throughout history, there's always been a debate about what exactly makes up a human person. We all know at the very, very basic, the very minimal way you can look at this, we're made up of at least two things. What we might call the physical part of me, the material part of me, and biblically we would call this your body. And then what would the other part be? Your spirit. Or maybe we would say your, your soul. There's a material part of you. There's an immaterial part of you. And a lot of the heresies of the church have related to how those two parts interact. You may have a tendency to think the one part is bad and one part is good. What's the bad part? We feel like it's the body, and then the good part is the spirit. That's not exactly true, um, because when God created Adam and Eve, put him in the garden, looking at creation, the physical world itself, what did he say about that creation? It's good. There's nothing wrong with the human body. It's a good thing. You're going to get a new one. In the end, you'll spend eternity in a good, perfect, new body. It's physical, but we, we can see that there's a tension, a distinction between the body and the spirit. We know that when a person dies, our lingo would say something to the effect, oh, they're not here. But if I open up a casket at a funeral, and you told me Granny wasn't here, but I open up that casket, who's in the casket? I mean, is it Granny or is it just a lump of tissue? Which is it? It's just tissue? So if I went to a funeral, brought my Sharpie, and wrote something on Granny's head, on the casket, on that lump of tissue, would anyone be offended? Yes. We're in the South. I would get shot. Okay? <laughs> not happening. Because that's granny. It's not all a granny, though. We know what we mean. There's, there's some sense in which granny's not here, because granny's where? She's in heaven with the Lord. But we don't mean her body's there. Her body's here. But that's still her body. Though. That's why we take care to... You know, embalmment, we put it in a fancy, you spend a lot of money for a box or a lump of tissue. You know, that's an actual person that we're putting in the ground, but we know their, their consciousness, the spirit, maybe the soul, is with the Lord. Now, I use a lot of different words because the Bible uses a lot of different words. Now, it's easy, however, to misuse that distinction where we're body and spirit, and really what we think is we're spirit and we're just in a body. That's not biblical. Really, the line between body and spirit is really kind of hard to define. Your mind. Is your mind body or is it spirit? How many of you just lean naturally think, well, that's kind of more of your spirit? But can you have physical things that impact your ability to think? You skip a meal, it's going to impact the way you think. Brain trauma can impact the way you think. So clearly the mind is physical. But we know, well, it's, it's 
spiritual too, though, isn't it? Your heart's desires, is that, is that biochemical or is it spiritual? And the answer is, eh? yeah, it's the line between the two is really fuzzy, biblically speaking. Yeah, I have a body, I have a spirit or a soul, but uh, the line in between them is very difficult to distinguish. That's why the Bible speaks of us as one thing, mostly. We're just human, and humans are fleshly. They're also spiritual. It's just kind of all the different pieces of the same thing, but it's really hard to distinguish between the two. So filling in the next blank, while we are body and spirit, it's important to remember that a human is a whole person. This makes sense if you think about it. There's a lot of things in life we can experience physically, but we feel like we also experience them on a soul level. For me, interestingly enough, it does revolve around food a lot. I say this all the time. There's some types of food that when I eat them, it's, I feel like it's not my body that consumes them. My soul ate that food. You know what I'm talking about. You know, it's just like, oh. And somehow in that moment, there's a clear linkage between the body and the soul. What we're going to see is fasting is exactly that. From the other side, fasting is one of the ways we unite the mind. We unite the spirit with the body. So when we fast, we engage our spirit by means of our bodies. So just to see an example of this, it's not about fasting, but I'll give you the, the basic idea of how this is connected. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he's writing this letter. Of course, we studied 2 Corinthians last year. You may remember this portion of the book, and, and you may remember he, part of the reason he's writing this book is because he got really depressed. He got really spiritually low, but also physically low. He says, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So their physical, bodily, earthly pain did what to him spiritually? And trust in the Lord more. So Paul in that moment is having a complete unity in flesh and spirit, in body and soul. Something physical happening to him is giving him a greater degree of spiritual success in his trusting of the Lord. And that's what we're saying is happening in fasting. When we fast, when we don't eat, we are connecting the body and the soul. So here's how I want you to think about that. Um, if so I fasted this week just in preparation for this sermon. And I don't say that to boast. I say that to repent because, like, fasting is not a typical part of my life. You can look at me and probably tell that. But uh, so, so I did. I did a fast this week. And I'll be honest, it was incredibly difficult uh, to fast. Just, just I did the, the no food during the daylight hours thing. So it, it wasn't even that long, but it felt like an eternity. Um, and so I missed the meal. And after missing the one meal, my body's like, doing, bud? You know what I'm talking about. Have you ever, you know, at any given point of the day, you want a million different things. But if you miss a meal, you may still want those million things, but you become keenly aware of one particular thing that you want. Let me tell you, by the time supper came, all I could think of was food. It was like all of my power for desire had been focused singularly 
on one thing. It's a magnifying glass. You take all the power of the sun and you hone it into one precise point. Everything in my mind, my body and my soul were in unison. Brian, you're going to eat something now. It was focused, focal point. All right, here's what fasting is, though. It's us experiencing that sense of focus, the sense of direction, drive, of absolute certainty about what it is that I want and I need. And now that it's all contained, now that it's all refined, now that it's focused in one beam of energy, I take it and I turn it. Turn it up to Christ and say, that's where my beam needs to be. I want you. Now, it's the warning the food that allows me to do this. So during the entire fast, I'm going to still be hungry. But the hunger we feel allows us to focus that beam on Christ instead. And so as I think about food every moment, the longer into the day I got, the more consumed I was with hunger and desire. I say, God, I need you like this. I don't feel like this. If I eat, I'm not thinking about desire in the same way, but this fasting allows me to focal point this beam in one direction. Let's grab it and point it to the Lord. I need you this way. I need you like this. So fasting reveals our hunger, which in turn should be directed toward Christ. That's our goal here. We're not fasting to lose weight. I mean, you can do that, but that's not a biblical fast. I'm fasting to redirect, to focus that hunger in one singular direction turn it towards Christ. And it's in that moment like that that we can learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. So that's what we're trying to do here. So how should we fast? Let's just think about the logistics of this. Fasting is a, first blank, a tool. It's not an end in itself. The goal is not to be a good faster. That's, that's not what we're trying to learn to do. Fasting is just a tool. So fast the way that works for you. I know that the question comes up here, so, you know, if maybe medically you've got a reason you, you can't, you feel like you can't fast. Well, can you fast other things? Well, we know clearly there were other examples of fast in the scripture besides just food. Food was a big deal because I guarantee you, you miss a meal and it's like immediately you hone those desires in one singular direction. So if you fast something else, it needs to have that same kind of power for you. You say, well, I'm going to fast cookies. I don't want to eat any more cookies. Well, maybe you shouldn't eat any more cookies. This could be helpful in other ways. But the reality is, is, well, you don't eat cookies for a couple days, and then you just don't think about cookies. You're not really any tempted by them anymore unless you see them. You see these chocolate chip homemade cookies that are moist and melt in your mouth. You know, and you're like, oh, man, I do want that. But until I said that, you probably weren't thinking about cookies during the sermon. You understand what I'm saying? But if I preach too long, you will start thinking about lunch. Who's checked their watch so far? You know, you better be guilty when you go home. <laughs> Again, fasting is a tool. And can it be things other than food? Yes. But I would say it needs to be something you, that can create that focal point of desire for you. If it doesn't do that, then it's probably not going to be a useful fast. This is why food is so regularly used in Scripture, because it guaranteed you will fill it if you miss this meal, especially if you miss Two meals. Second, fasting does not have to be long. We don't have a lot of example in the Bible of long fasts. Um, we have the two from Jesus and Moses, and you can try that if you want, but you're not Jesus or Moses. We see lots of examples of just this short fasting. You're 
praying about something that's coming up, some short, soon-to-be-made decision, and someone fast, a lot of fasts really only 12 hours. It could be as long as 24, but it doesn't have to be long. It just has to be useful. You don't fast to become more righteous, to become more religious. Oh, God's going to love me more because I'm a good faster. That's, that's not what I'm doing here. I'm only fasting as a tool for my growth and sanctification. I want to take that desire and point it at Christ. Now, I know we, we're probably all familiar with the, the comments on fasting in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus tells us, when we fast, you know, don't look all hungry and mar your face. Oh, woe is me. But, but comb your hair, put on your makeup, wear nice clothes, and like, act like nothing's going on. Fast in secret. Now, that leads us to believe, though, however, that maybe we should never fast corporately. Well, just like in the, the paragraph right before that, Jesus tells you to pray in your prayer closet. But virtually all prayers in the Bible, are they private or public? It's almost exclusively corporate public prayers. We should pray out loud together. In the same way, there's appropriate times for corporate fast in Scripture. One of the best examples of this is in Acts 13. You may know this story as the, the leading into the, the prelude, so to speak, of Paul's first missionary journey. The elders of the church had gathered together. They were praying and they were fasting to ask the Lord what they were to do next. And the Lord, in that prayer meeting, in that time of fasting, said, I want you to take Saul, and I want you to take Barnabas, and send them out. And that happened during a corporate fast. So corporate fast, to your next point, are biblical. But I want to make sure we, we keep everything sound, put a bracket around the entire question with this. Fasting does not grant us power over God. We have a tendency to do this with anything. If we act in such a way, we think we can now manipulate God to our advantage. And we might not call it that. We certainly never say that out loud. But it's so easy for us in our psyche to make God owe us one. You owed me. I made a promise, and you didn't keep your end of the bargain. No, 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 no. Fasting doesn't allow us to do this. Fasting doesn't make us worthy. Remember, these are means of grace, not means of merit, not means of work, not means of making God have to do something on our behalf. This is all about us. Focusing our desire on Christ instead. So let's talk about the hope of fasting. I'm going to call your attention to a very interesting passage in Matthew. Go ahead and turn there. Matthew 26, 29. This, of course, is the story where Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper with his disciples um, right before he's crucified. And I want to see what he does at the very end of that narrative. Don't take, eat, this is my body, and then drink, do this in remembrance of me. This is the blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 29, he makes this really interesting statement. So what's Jesus about to do? He's going to be crucified, resurrected, and then ascend into heaven. And then one day we're promised he's going to come back and get us. We had two songs today that referenced that specific moment. Jesus is going to return, and we're in this in-between. He's not here. He's somewhere else, and he says, I tell you. I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What is Jesus doing right now? He's fasting. Why? He's not going to take a drop. He's waiting on us to get there because now there's a separation. It's like in that analogy. You don't fast when the bridegroom's here. You fast when he's gone. And Jesus, in this odd reversal, is fasting while he's gone, waiting on us to be with him. Do you see how even in this moment, it's all connected to our relationship 
with Christ, our communion with him. We fast as a reminder that we're not in heaven now. That's probably our greatest sin in this country. And I love our country. We have more wealth. We have more freedom. We have more money, more power, more food, more resources, more access to the lights of the flesh than any group of people who have ever lived. Sometimes because of that, it's easy for us to forget that this is our exile. This is not our home. This is, this is the part that's broken. This is the jars of clay that are smashed. This is the light momentary affliction, as Paul calls it, that we suffer through waiting the eternal weight of glory. Fasting reminds us that we are not in heaven, and sometimes we just need to stop not eat that meal, not enjoy that delight, not because it's bad, not because I need to be more righteous and fast, but simply because I need to remind myself that this isn't it. There's something greater than this. And we are longing and waiting and hoping for that day. I'll venture to say I think for myself one of the reasons I don't fast is I'm not thinking about that day that much. Too easy just to delight the things God has given us, and then delight in them so much that I start to delight in them instead of delighting in God. So I'm not trying to teach us, tell you that you should abstain from all good things and live in the sackcloth and ashes and fast, not at all. But I'm saying we can use fasting as a biblical tool to engage body and soul together and point that in desire towards Christ. We do this. We do it faithfully. We do it at all. Maybe regularly, maybe semi-regularly, just whenever we can. To whatever degree we can. Let's use this tool so that we can grow in grace. Let's pray together. We're going to take the offering up in a moment. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. That he would bless the time we've spent together and the offering we're about to receive. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that the bridegroom came lived among us, but in the end gave his life as our substitute. In our place, taking the full weight of sin so that we could be redeemed. And then rose from the dead and ascended to the throne room of heaven and sits now at your right hand. God, while he is gone, I pray that as we sure indulge and delight in the good gifts that you have given, I pray that we would also abstain from these things from time to time be reminded of the glorious goodness that is to come. Father, as we give of our tithes, we give our offerings this morning, I pray that you would use that money in ways that are beyond us. Bless the gift, bless the giver. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. As the offering plate is going around, I have a few announcements to make. Number one, um, we are during this uh, month of October taking elder nominations, and that means from the congregation, someone nominates another man in this church who seems to be a man of good faith, good character, a good example of godliness who could also show some leadership potential. And we need a description of why that person is a good candidate and at least a few other members who have agreed with this assessment and then turn that into to one of the elders straight to me. And we will consider those nominations this coming March. So I encourage you to pray about that, to think about that, perhaps even fast about that. Um, the book club for the ladies is coming up soon. I believe it's the 27th, 8th, 28th. 
So uh, there's more details about that in your bulletin. And I think the, we can actually close for more details about that um, after service. Also, we're doing a slight change with our children's ministry, which starts next Sunday. So just to be aware, the older class, only the older class, which is first through sixth grade, they're going to come in service with us for part of our time. This is to allow them to enjoy worship with us and to partake of or at least observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper being taken. Some of them are old enough, have confessed faith and been baptized and do partake of that. And this gives us an opportunity for them to do that with the body. And then as soon as communion is over, the kids will line up at the back and go into their classroom for their age-appropriate teaching. Now we'll begin next Sunday. We're sending out a little note with, with all the, the children today so that you're reminded of that, but that'll be coming. Everything else is exactly the same. Check in and check out. It's exactly the same. It's just that first portion of the service, they will be in here with us. Now, I think that's all the regular announcements. Um, we're going to um, do a little better job of our practice of introducing new folks at the church. And uh, I want to invite the Taylor family to come up now. Um, they have officially um, signed our membership covenant. We met with them and and walk through the handbook, and they want to be members of our church, and so they have filled out, I'm not filled out, um, gone through with me and signed that document, and so I want to um, introduce them to you today. Many of you already know them, but they're official, but we have Yogi, Kelly, Noah, Hannah, Andrew, Alex. I almost said Noah. That's what got me. I, I, I knew it, but I almost started over. So, all right, I've, I've met with them, and it is Yogi, Kelly, and uh, Noah that are formally joining the church, have been um, born again and baptized, and so they will be formal members, but we welcome the whole family. I want to say a prayer of blessing and welcoming to them um, as we conclude service. And what I ask you to do, especially our members, come introduce yourself to them, welcome them to the family, make sure you at least give them your name at least once and quiz them next week to see if they remember um, but uh, we welcome them to the body. We are very glad to have this whole family, great, godly people. I've spent a lot of time with them and love this family. So I pray that you would welcome and, and love them as well. So let me say a prayer of blessing. This will also be how we conclude the service. God, we thank you for your good glory, your grace poured out on us. I thank you for the Taylor family. I pray that you would use them here in a way that is beneficial to our church, beneficial to their spiritual growth. We thank you for sending them our way. We pray that we would be a blessing to them as we welcome and affirm them as members of the body of Christ, as we love on them, as we serve them, and as they find ways to serve our church. God, I pray that you would bless them, bless our church in this unity. Father, I pray that as we leave this morning, you would give us a strong sense of your presence, and that at the end of the day, you would satisfy our desires more than anything in the flesh does. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Come welcome the Taylors.
get your outfit just to hand it goes good with you. You got it blended, huh? Good morning. Hi there. Thank you very much.